0: back my friends to the show that never ends i'm glad you could attend again you are listening to the let's talk hemp podcast i am your host morris beagle welcome to the show Hello and good day everyone. Welcome to episode five of season four here on the Let's Talk Hemp Volume Up podcast. Today we head north of the border to the land of ice and snow and a country that is far more locked down than the USA or Mexico. We're going to Canada, home of the great progressive rock band Rush. Rest in peace, Neil Peart, one of the greatest drummers ever to walk the earth. Today, I am joined by hemp industry veteran and superstar, Andrea Herman from Hemp Production Services, otherwise known as HPS. I have had the pleasure of being mentored by Andrea since getting into the hemp industry, and I am excited to shine a light on our friends up north who have been pioneering the hemp foods market since before the year 2000. We will be joined today by Ruth Shamai of Roos Hemp Foods, along with Mike Fada, co-founder of Manitoba Harvest which is and has been the largest hemp foods brand in the world for well over a decade. We will be discussing the early days and the rise of the Canadian hemp industry. I want to give a shout out to my episode four guest, Lorena Beltran from Cannabis Salude, along with Bob Hoban and the Luis Armaderas from the Hoban Law Group, for discussing all the exciting things happening with full cannabis legalization in Mexico, along with some other highlights on cannabis and hemp legalization throughout Latin America. I also would like to mention the next episode after today's will air on April 15th, as I am going to skip the regular April 1st episode as we will be coming out of NOCO Hemp Expo, which is taking quite a bit of time, energy, and resources to pull this event off during the downturn of the COVID pandemic. Speaking of NOCO Hemp Expo, it is happening in person March 25th through the 27th. If you can't make it in-person, we have a virtual ticket option that will allow you to see all of our conferences, including the investor forum, business conference, and farm symposium. We have over 300,000 square feet of event space where we will be implementing safety protocols, social distancing, CDPHE, and Denver Health Department recommendations so that we provide a safe environment that is COVID compliant for all of our attendees. And with that, I'm going to get Andrea on the line and discuss the rise of the Canadian hemp industry. And I would like to bring on my good friend and colleague, Andrea Herman. How are you doing today,
1: Andrea? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. So nice to be here with you, Morris. Wish I could see you in person at NOCO, but next year.
0: Yeah, well, you've been out at NOCO many, many times, and I certainly appreciate all that you've contributed to NOCO, and not only to NOCO, just to the hemp industry over the course of the last 20 years. It's been great to to be able to get to know you, and I look up to you as a mentor, and Thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's it's great. Thanks. Uh, On a podcast that has all the greats.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I one of the first podcasts I ever did, I was on your iHemp podcast back in, I don't know, 2015 or 2016 before podcasts were as cool as they are now.
1: Thank you for that. That It's a lot of work.
0: It is a lot of work. It's a challenge. I've got a podcast company that helps me out with things now and does some of the editing, but I still have to do some of it. And it does take time. Mm-hmm. To put together an episode, there's no question about thank it.
1: your listeners, thank you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we've got a pretty good listener base out there. So thanks everybody for listening and and this episode is the rise of the Canadian hemp industry and you've been involved with the Canadian hemp industry. When did you exactly jump into the space?
1: Well, when I, well, going back to being in high school and I, or yeah, high school and I learned about cannabis. And then all of a sudden I, you know, I learned that in Missouri, we had a history of hemp, which was part, you know, I learned about marijuana first and then it kind of tied in. I was like, oh, what's all this marijuana stuff about? I'm pro-marijuana. And then all of a sudden I like, Hey, there's, there's hemp there was hemp in Missouri. What's this all about? And I remember my mom, I found out about the wears no clothes, Jack's book. And I was like, I have to find this book. I got it at the library and I returned it on time. And then I wanted to check it out again. And they didn't have it. And I was like, mom, we have to go find this book. We have to find this book. And I found a little hemp store in Springfield, Missouri. It was like a little hole in the wall. And they had one book. And I said, Mom, we have to go there and get it right now. We've got to drive to Springfield. I just can't live without this book. It's like changing my life. And my mom and my brother, we got in the car the next day. I had them hold the book for me. And we drove, my mom drove me up to Springfield to buy Jack's book. And that is, as is, is a lot of people that's their story is how that book came into their life and really opened the eyes because at that point there wasn't information that we have. And, you know, and the researchers out there, the historians like John that have all of this knowledge base that now is uploaded and shared all the time. We didn't have it back then. So it became something that immediately became part of my final vocabulary, and when I got into university, I was taking my courses and my professor said, you know, Hey, Andrea, it's time for you to declare a major. You've, it's time. And I said, you know, I don't know. None of this stuff really excites me. I, you know, biology. Yeah. Chemistry. Yeah. Maybe poli sci. And then he said, well, I really want to know what pisses you off. I want to know what you get up every day. And you're like, this is so wrong. He says, that's what I want to know. And I said, it's the hemp thing. And he said, go make it happen. And it was with that encouragement from Dr. Jackson that I started emailing people. This is early on in 2000 and saying, you know, hey, my name is I go to school here and I'm interested in an internship. And I secured an internship with the Parkland Industrial Hemp Growers in the Dauphin region, which changed my life forever. I would have been happy making, you know, filling somebody's lip balms. I still would have thought that I succeeded in the hemp industry, but it was really the break with the Parkland Industrial Hemp Growers and the kindness and the generosity of, of the Federoach family who took me in for four summers, I think. And I stayed in their home and they helped me, you know, really hone in on, on I was working in the breeding program, but I also learned about, you know, how farming works. I was on a huge farm and they really you know let me drive the tractors and 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 get involved in in what was going on on a daily basis so i learned the humility i learned the struggles that can happen on a farm especially in an industry where at that time we did not have a developed industry to sell that product into
0: and so that was in 2000 2001 2002 that's when you jumped in after you read the Jack book, which is my introduction to the hemp industry as well. I read that in 1995, I moved back to Colorado and there was a store in Fort Collins called The Himper Wears No Clothes that I started hanging out at. And that book was there and I read it and they had soap and rope and clothes and ball caps and that sort of thing. And, And that's where I first got introduced to it as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, you know, has shaped so many of us. And at that time coming in, you know, there were very, there are very few females in the industry at that time. There were in the US, the, you know, the leaders that were really the women that were really guiding the Hemp Industries Association. And then luckily, you know, when I came to Canada, being able to be around strong Farming women that also embraced them where I really wanted to go in plant breeding, and then you know, working with guests like Ruth Shamai and also Barbara Philippone, who really embraced me also early on. And so, I'm really thankful for those women to you know step up because it was you know, it, it was a little difficult and intimidating. I was young, I had no agricultural experience, and I was sitting at the table. And I was I was adamant that I um, wanted to make a difference. And thankfully, I was embraced by everybody at the table, Canada, the U.S. and in Europe to really be part of a, a change that was collectively happening.
0: When did the Canadian Trade Association get going?
1: I think that was 2004. Basically, we had like there was an Ontario Association, there was a British Columbia Association, a Saskatchewan Association, a Manitoba Association. So it started popping up with these little groups of people that were like, hey, we need to build an association together because we need to get funding. And then what was happening was that when it came to federal funding here in Canada, and we're set up on a different system where we have one law. Well, now it's the cannabis act it's kind of rolled into you know the marijuana and the hemp all kind of rolled into one act but then it was a separate cannabis hemp standalone act that was there so we had the the act to work under and we all had to when federal funding came out, they were getting funding requests from the Ontario Association and from the Saskatchewan Association and the governments were saying, hey, you do not have a united voice here. If you want to secure the amount of funding that is available, you need to have a united voice. And and also all the double up work that was going on by having all of these really segmented associations. And so essentially all the players came together and said, hey, we need to create a one voice scenario so that our voice is heard because right now our voice is is not heard because it's muddled with everybody else's voice trying to come in. So at that point, that's when the Canadian Hip Trade Alliance formed. And Arthur Hanks was at that time brought on as the executive director. And we helped develop the, the industry and, and eventually, you know, you had to get more sophisticated and more people in position and really had a stellar board that came forward. And we had, you know, all the all the companies were working together, Manitoba Harvest, Hemp Oil Canada, the Fiber guys, and they all were coming together to try to help push the industry and also came together to help fight for the right of hemp foods in the United States, along with the DEA, of course, and the HIA.
0: Right. Right. Well, we've still got quite a few organizations here in the U.S. that need to really align a little bit better. I mean, we've made progress here. We've got legal hemp, but there's still we need one united voice rather than having five, six, seven organizations. And then however many other little state organizations and grower co-ops and so forth. We really need to get our message aligned here in the United States and globally which we were talking yeah. about off air about the aligning standardization for seed and for fiber and cannabinoids.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, if, and I get this lots is, you know, oh, what variety are you growing? Well, you know, and what's, what's it like, how's it differ? And, you know, is, and that's going to be really important as we move down to making hemp a commodity. We're still a niche crop. We're still a specialty crop. If we want to get to the point to where we are a commodity and we can basically take hemp, from multiple farms and dump it into one big bin and then sell all of that grain out as 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 grain. We're gonna need to have a unified specification for grain. And then in furthering that, those, you know, the companies and still today we're developing, you know, what are the food standards that we need to abide by? What are the grain standards that we need to abide by? And it also helps the farmers know because they need to know what they need to grow. And what the quality needs to be so they know where to sell it
0: well we're going to get there still early on here in the united states and i guess canada even though it's 20 plus years old there's still plenty of room to grow
1: absolutely i mean you know we have very limited fiber decortication in canada like i still can't believe i mean when i was in graduate school and i had no money and parkland hemp growers had their call for funding and the minimum buy-in was a thousand dollars i was like i'm getting into that savings. And I sent that thousand dollars and it was so sad when I got it back because they didn't get the rest of the funding. I was like, I can't believe this. And we still have the grandfather bales still sitting in the fields and places from 1998 when they legalized. Really? Yeah. Holy smokes. I mean, and they're like silver. This is why I call them the grandfather bales because the fiber has just become so soft from weathering and it's just like silver in color. Wow.
0: So like redded for 25 years?
1: Yeah, redded for 25 years sitting in bales. And some of those you can actually peel back the outer layers and inside it's still golden. So it's, it's an amazing crop. You know, some of those they have literally just taken a match to. And, you know, in Europe, they would be like, they just call, be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you guys burn your fiber. And we're like, oh, we can't believe you don't eat hemp food so much. So it's, it's been, it's been a difficult journey on the fiber side, chicken and egg scenario. The products are developing as you know, and are passionate about, but we've got that missing link. So if anybody ever comes to me, I say, let's build decortication facilities. We don't need one. We need thousands of decortication facilities to be able to supply and, and spread the risk management out for companies that want to come in, because you're you're going to have a hard time developing a full product and, and going national or international with that product if you don't know that you have a secure supply chain. And if one of those facilities happens to shut down for some reason that you've got a backup to go to.
0: Well, I'm excited about the fiber market that's going to happen in North America. We had the last episode I had Bob Hobin and Lorena Beltran and Luis Armaderas and Mexico is going to be fully legal, all parts of cannabis and hemp will be at 1%, but there's some great fiber opportunities that are going to happen in Mexico. There certainly are in the United States and in Canada, we've got uh, Canadian Rockies hemp and there's several other people that are going to be ramping up the fiber side there in, in Canada. And, North America could really be a powerhouse in the next five to 10 years, putting in fiber facilities, again, from Canada all the way down through Mexico.
1: And it facilitates the farmers to be able to, you know, potentially do anywhere from two to four different types of contracting on that one crop. And that's really helps the, the farmer increase their farm gate, even if they're only doing two contracts, a grain contract, and then the stock contract after it, it, it provides an opportunity for the farmer. And then also can bring the pricing down because if you're only growing for grain and you have to throw away all the fiber, well, you, you know, you've got to deal with that. Then it costs money to deal with fiber. It's not like it's an easy thing to cut an easy thing to bail. I mean, you, it winds on things. It gets... It gets dreaded up in the machines and you have to get in there and bust knuckles to get it out. so the world's strongest long natural fiber, as we know. I mean, maybe there's a silk in there somewhere. But, you know, it's it's different because there, there's cost associated with that. So if we could offset that cost, then the farmer can maybe bring the grain prices down, which brings the food prices down, which means more people get to eat the food because it's at a more reasonable cost. So we need that, the, the concept of total crop utilization.
0: Couldn't agree more. Well, we've got a couple of hemp pioneers coming up to talk to today. So we've got Ruth from Ruth Hemp Foods, and then Mike Fada from Manitoba Harvest. Why don't we get Ruth up here? You've you've known Ruth for a long time, and and I, it was a great recommendation to bring her on this show.
1: Thank you. Yeah, Ruth, we owe, we owe a lot to Ruth. We owe a lot to Ruth, the fact that she's still here with us and still moving forward and having her voice heard and being an important role model for the now generation of hemsters. And, you know, maybe a lot of people don't know Ruth because she's not like, she's not the, you know, sort of the mics of the world that have been really out there and had a potential lot of money tied to your name, which gives you a, a little bit more increase of fame than what Ruth has. So she's been very grassroots and and impacted me greatly greatly. greatly as being a person who embraced me and, and, and showed me that, you know, we, we have a voice and as long as that voice is unified, we, we can start making the differences.
0: Well, why don't we get Ruth up and have a conversation with her? Perfect. And here we are. Let's Talk Hemp podcast, volume up, talking about the rise of the Canadian hemp industry. I've got Andrea Herman with me as my co-host, and we've got Ruth from Ruth's Hemp Foods in Canada. How are you doing today, Ruth?
2: I'm doing great, Morris. It's so nice to see you, and Andrea, always a thrill to see you. Yeah, it's a beautiful day here, and I'm excited to be on the podcast.
0: Well, we're excited to have you on the podcast, and it's a beautiful day here in Colorado too. So let's, uh, let's get going with this. How did you actually get into the hemp industry? What brought you here?
2: Actually, I had an environmental mail order company in the early 90s, meaning everything environmental, this was really before the environmental movement and also before the internet. I had to do things like print catalogs and send them in the mail and things like that and people would mail me orders and I was always you know trying to make it work and there were no clothes because essentially clothes are not an environmental idea but eventually I did want to make some money with it and I thought I should incorporate some clothes so what would be environmental clothing and someone said why don't you put some hemp in there and I thought oh there's an idea and I started looking into the whole thing and discovered that even though we had previously grown hemp in Canada at this point not a, it was not a domestic industry in any way shape or form and it should be and I looked around and saw that there was a um, movement starting in Canada and I joined up and I'm proud to say I'm one of the people that helped legalize hemp in Canada which we did in 98
0: So that's when you got in was like in 98 97 when you well, yeah, I
2: would say probably 95, you know, cuz oh. there was the slow build there. The very first venture I had in hemp for my company was importing hemp yarn and fabrics from uh, China and then we made some hemp clothing for the the Natural Order, which was my environmental mail order and also we knitted hemp socks and like that, you know, uh, but cuz it was not yet legal here. But the whole time we were working on it, and in 98, when we legalized, then I switched gears altogether.
0: So you were bringing in yarn and having it weaved right there and cut and sewn? Everything was done there in Canada? Or were you bringing in fabric?
2: I was bringing in fabric for, like, shirts and jackets and stuff and yarn for socks, and they were knit into socks here in Canada. okay. Yeah, somewhere or other, I still have a pair. It crossed my mind to dig it out for to show you, but never mind.
1: That is interesting because <laughs> we do have, I know, in in Toronto particularly, the, there still is cut and sew that happens. Yeah, um, with definitely other right now. So it's good to see that infrastructure still exists. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep, and knitting and everything.
1: Now, Ruth, from that, my my next question leading in is, you know, the kind of shift that happened when legalization had occurred. And I'm curious about your role in the bringing the genetics to Canada and how that was developed.
2: Ah, well, that was extremely interesting and fun because when I was thinking about the whole thing and what it should look like, I thought, you know, we should have seed, which is acclimatized to Canada, which of course didn't exist. Even when we legalized what we first did was bring in all of the OECD varieties. They were allowed to be grown here, but there was nothing that was Canadian made. And so I found a PhD plant breeder. That would be Dr. Dave Hutchison. I don't know if you ever met him, Andrea. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And because he was a PhD plant breeder, he was given a dis- we were given a dispensation from Health Canada to bring in any type of seed we wanted regardless of THC level or whatever, because it was an experiment, right? Science is science. You don't know what's going to come out. And I wrote to 400 plant conservancies and conservatories around the world and said, if you have, you know, a little bit of cannabis sativa that we could have, we would like this and we have to arrange papers. So please let us know if you have any that we can bring in and uh, and we'll arrange for that. And we never got any requests back from any countries, but every once in a while, a little envelope of seed would drop through Dave's door. (laughs) And out of that, we had about, I think from memory, I believe it was about 24 different varieties that we put to work in Saskatchewan, just outside of Saskatoon to, uh, to see what would come up, what would germinate, what it was like, and what we could make out of that. And that is actually how the now Canadian variety Craig was born. And uh, and then, of course, that was crossed many times. And some of those are still very mm-hmm. much in use oh, here in Canada. Yeah, that's my contribution you to uh, Canadian genetics. You so,
1: <laughs> so much for um, the foresight in that. And, and then just the, the ability to sit down and send out 400 probably plus letters asking for the kindness of these seeds to be sent. And what a surprise as they started hitting your door. Well, thank <laughs> it you. It was hysterical. Dave would phone me and say, got
2: another one today. <laughs> and we also arranged with um, with the Institute in St. Petersburg, right, Sergey over there uh, mm-hmm. with the Babelov Institute, where they had the huge collection of cannabis seeds. So we arranged for some of those. And someone who has sadly passed from the hemp industry, Michael Sutherland, he sent us some out of China and we put all of those together and Craig came out of it.
0: Do you own any IP on any cultivars that are in Canada right now?
2: Uh, No, sadly not. Dave, just the whole Canadian regulatory experience drove him crazy and he wanted to get out of here and he was the breeder, not me. So we thought we better find someone to look after the project and we found a professor that was Al Slinker. Did you know him in Saskatchewan? Yeah. Anyway, and um, and then he wasn't well and it passed out of his hands and um, I don't own any IP. Yeah, but it, it isn't
1: lost. I think Andrea knows where it is. <laughs> There's that- some of that and those genetics did help build as Ruth said the foundation of the stable varieties that are now in Canada and also those that from Canada that have led into the United States so Ruth has her little heart and fingerprint on all pretty much every hemp that comes into the digestion of people horses and animals at this point because of her grassroots work so thank you so much for Ruth. Thank you very kind of you. Yeah. Hmm. Well, sister, you know it. And so then from there, I mean, looking at the genetic side, what what made the shift into, you know, going, oh, well, hey, now we're going to food. This is the next thing. And we know that food was not legalized in Canada yet. So there had to be a push governmentally to, to get hemp recognized as a food. Can you point on that? Actually, as soon as we legalized in 98, Health Canada did
2: not object to it being food. They understood the nutritional value and my personal interest in food, I'd always been interested in nutrition and knew a fair bit about it. And so I i was just looking at that and thinking, I'm going to do something with that seed. It's so good for you. And also, it's what we could do, because many of the other things, i you know, we could talk about many of the other uses, but that's what was really close at hand and close to my heart was to do something with food and CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, they had no problem with it per se. That was not a hurdle. Now having other food standards to live up to, of course, was important. And, and Ruth, from that, what was the first product that you launched as Ruth's Hemp Foods? Oh, in the very beginning of the year 2000, hemp tortilla chips came on the market certified organic hemp tortilla chips. So they were in three flavors and, you know, of course they had corn in them, but it was non-GMO because I was a values-based company and my primary value was uh, non-GMO. And uh, yeah, that was always important throughout everything. So yes, the hemp tortilla chips came out and everyone was like, can you smoke it?
0: (laughs) "Ah!" Do you still have tortilla chips? I don't see tortilla chips out there, except there is a New York company that just released tortilla chips in like the last eight months.
2: Oh, well, no, because I stopped making food in 2013. So uh, I have some old bags I could show you. Don't open them. They'll kill you.
1: (laughs) I, I think I, well, I have some empty bags, Ruth. And I know your brand particularly was very unique in, what you were adding to it, like your protein powders weren't just plain hemp protein powder, you were adding maca and other flavors that really set your brand aside. I mean, I know you did waffles, you had the hemp burgers. So at that time, it was so forward thinking. And I think we're still catching up on that today with those types of foods, as Morris was pointing out
2: yeah i did have really a lot of different things out there in the market that was uh you know it was so much fun to do and there's so much to explore and i just couldn't wait to wrap my arms around the whole thing and it was also a problem
1: Yeah, And I think people, we, we see that in general in the hemp industry, people see it. Oh, we can do, you know, hundred million things from it. I want to do it all. And it's like, wait, you have to exactly. step back and hone in on what's really important to you. If not, you can get lost in translation and then you're filing bankruptcy or you've spent everything to try to do too much at once. Very much so. Yeah. Now, my question for you, in addition, is what early hempsters really impacted you? You know, when I came to Canada, you were the only woman in in the hemp industry that I, besides Dolores, Federal and some of the, the wives of the farmers I was working with who were out there with their husbands doing it. Their husbands might've been in front, but you know, they were there. So I did have them to impress upon me, but as a businesswoman. You were essentially the only person here that I was like, whoa, look at what this other woman is doing. And and you embraced me from the beginning. What other early hamsters really impacted you, women or not? It doesn't matter.
2: I was certainly happy when you came on the scene, Andrea. I mean, it was a blessing for the industry and to me as well to have a sister in the industry. But I mean, a lot of, you know, when, when I really caught hold of the hemp industry here, it was mostly happening in the States. So, you know, I went to the early HIA meetings and stuff and met people like Mary Kane, who published Hemp World and is still my personal friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and, and Candy Pan and uh, Christy Bowling, of course. But more than that, in Canada, there was Larry Dupre, who was my close friend. And, you know, the passion that he brought to the whole thing um, it was just outstanding. The passion and the sense of humor, there was no one like Larry. And, uh, you know, and in the States, there was Chris and Mickey, right? Chris Conrad uh, and Mickey Norris, wonderful people, and both so passionate and so knowledgeable. You know, I just had to really admire them, what they brought to everything they did made a big impact on me. Yeah. And of course, the others. But when you ask that, they they all pop into my head. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and and so thankful that, you know, that some of those people are still out there, you know, moving forward and pushing the industry. Some have passed and we are able to now carry the torch for them to say. Morse, do you have a question you'd like to come in?
0: Sure. What current projects are you working on now, Ruth?
2: Oh, my goodness. Well, you might think I'd slow down, but that just wouldn't be me. Um, (laughs) So, um, yeah, I'm not working in the food industry anymore, although when I hear that there's no tortilla chips except for recently, I think, gee, maybe I should. However, no, I've been working to create a different type of water-soluble CBD and by different type, certified organic and backed by science, has been tested on animals and proven to be effective, and it will not be my own brand per se, retail brand instead it'll be a branded ingredient so it'll go it'll be sold to beverage and food manufacturers and i will promote them with my cute little logo as backed by science certified organic because it's something that we're, we're testing and we know exactly what it is and it's truly soluble and we know what our claims mean because people say oh yeah it'll absorb into your bloodstream eight times faster or i've heard 45 times faster crazy things and you say really how do you know that hmm. <laughs> you know yeah we we think so well we will know so Um, You know, so I'm working on that and I've been working on that for a very long time and hit many stumbling blocks, but that will be made in the States and also licensed in Canada. It's harder to work in the the CBD and the cannabis side of the industry in Canada because of the crazy number of regulations and things they want you to do. And I thought, no, I'll just work in the States because it's so much easier, even if I don't go there. So that's one thing I'm doing, aqua CBD, look for it soon.
1: Aqua,
2: um, aqua CBD, yeah. Okay. Aqua, you know, like water. Right. Um, and, um, and we'll be making that from isolate broad spectrum and uh, powder, which will actually no smoke, no smell, but definite recreational effect within a few minutes. Uh, I've tried it. And, yeah, so that's cool because, you know, stir it into your water and... Enjoy yourself, and um, and also I was just recently asked to join Canna Systems. Um, do you know Bruce Ryan, Andrea? Yes. Yeah. So they've developed a a decorticator to. So this is the fiber side of life to separate to separate fibers, long from short, and get them out there. And I think that's very fascinating. And I was thrilled when they asked me to join their team. And uh, so, you know, not as as a full-time, because, you know, I have other things going on. But it is a very exciting space to work in. And remember that Canada's hemp industry started... In 94, with Jeff Keim and Joe Strobel, who got an allowance from Health Canada to grow hemp for the first time in Canada, like in the modern era, and they were growing it for fiber, right? Jeff is an engineer, and that was his vision was to to grow fiber. And and then, of course, it didn't materialize into fiber, but now we're coming full circle and going back into the fiber, which I think is wonderful, because of I think fiber always was the future and I still do. So yeah.
0: Cana Systems is a is that a fiber processing company that's in Canada operating right now?
2: They don't process the fiber itself, they create the fiber in a way by they've developed a machine that you can that will feed the stalks in and separate the long from the short fibers so it can go on to other processing of all kinds of clothing and paper and mdf board and hemp creed and all of the zillion things that you can do with the fiber after you have separated the long from the short and uh, gotten it out there so that's what they've developed is the, the um is the machine right systems.ca
0: yeah I, I was talking to aaron barr from canadian rockies hemp a week or two ago and i don't know if you're familiar with them but they just raised 18 million dollars and they're the probably the largest fiber processing company in North America right now. Hmm.
2: I I don't know them.
0: Yeah, but. so they just got an 18 million dollar investment and and we got 7500 pounds of 95% clean bass fiber for a paper project here in the US that we just ran 100% hemp paper with. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I I've seen your paper before and it's so impressive.
0: Well, we just did a trial run. It's like the first commercial run 100% hemp paper that's been done for a long time, as far as I know.
2: I guess I've seen your cards then, the hemp yeah, stock.
0: That's 25% hemp and 75% oh, post-consumer. Okay. But now we've got there. 100% hemp.
1: Awesome. That's great. That brings in a good point, Ruth, is, you know, talking about bringing it full, bringing it around and how now we're seeing, you know, the dynamic of the industry change. One is, you know, who's leading the industry. We've seen a lot of shift in, you know, it being a male dominated to having more women coming into positions of knowledge and being at the lead of businesses and really leading research see a lot of women researchers from coming in from the universities helping really advance that and how the fiber industry is now starting to kick up. I mean, I remember in the early days when we were taking press cake, because we didn't have a developed protein market yet. And we were taking press cake to the dump and literally pushing it out the back of the truck into the yeah. dump. And now we use every piece of press cake we can get, we use it to make into protein powder. So we're going to hopefully see that same shift in the fiber industry where there's going to be multiple different types of decortication, multiple different types of processing facilities so that we can push these raw ingredients out and then per- persons like Morris and others can come in and then help develop them from there.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And good point. I remember that with the press cake and when it was just going away because nobody wanted it, yeah. And yeah. all of you think of all of the stock which is plowed under annually, right? Mm -hmm. crazy, And I was actually looking on the Health Canada site at stats of what was grown for what reason. And the most recent stats I found were from 2019. So I don't know what happened last year. But they were just pitiful, really, in the amount that was grown for fiber was super, super low.
1: As opposed to anything else, I think I might even have that number for you. And I've often said, "Boy, if somebody's got some money, what would they?" If they said to me, "If I would build anything hemp, what would it be?" I say, "Build decortication facilities," because this is the missing link, as you said, to what is the real goldmine of the of the the plant and how that can be so diverse. Not to take away from the power of the food. But the power of the fiber, I mean, it just gets in you too. I mean, it, it, and yeah. you can see how that can be developed into in everything from biocomposites and so on. So yeah, that it's going to be real nice to see that develop. Now, Ruth, I just wanted to hit back on the, the shift in this the CBD and talking about the selection to work in the US versus Canada, because it is right now, if our listeners don't know in Canada, CBD is still controlled. So the farmer can grow it. They can harvest the constituent to be able to sell it to somebody. But once it gets to that manufacturer, then it has to go back into the marijuana side of the Cannabis Act. It's not a free-for-sell product. So that's made it difficult, Ruth, as you were saying, to develop products in Canada.
2: Very much so. Um, And whoever a farmer would sell it to has to have a license you know, in order to take it in and to work for it with it. And then they can only sell it to certain places. And you can't, you don't just have, we don't have gas stations selling CBD products in Canada, Morris. We do. (laughs) I know you do. (laughs) And it's everywhere. But here, um, there's a lot of stores opening in here in Ontario, where I live, practically on every block. But even last year, there was like, Ontario is the most populous Um, province in Canada and last year there was like 40 stores here or something now they've ramped that up so there's going to be really a lot of them but it is insane and and difficult and that CBD is under the same legislation as marijuana which is legal throughout the country given all of these restrictions but you know it's it's just a little mind-boggling and makes life difficult for for everybody all along the way and there's no reason for it and I know that the um the Health Food Association, Canadian Health Food Association, has tried to change the status of CBD, and perhaps that's coming. They did have a recent consultation period at Health Canada, and I don't think that anything's come out of that yet. Right, Andrea? do You know? No. No. Um, and they'll no doubt take their time, but uh, yeah, it just makes it so much more difficult. But in but I mean, you do what you can. So in Canada. I found, um, you know, some various people who want to license my product and then they can do everything. Just they can produce it and put it out to the people they're making stuff for and it'll get out there and I'll promote them. But I will be working more actively in the U.S. on that. Mm -hmm. And but yeah, I I also that's a wonderful side and, and because it's medicine and it's really helping people. The fiber side is also so intriguing. I did just look 23% in 2019 was grown for fiber purposes. So not a lot, right? Um, and also think about the environmental side, right? The carbon sink that is, uh, that is hemp. You know, so really we're ameliorating the entire environment by growing and using the hemp. So you know, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Such a great point,
1: Morris.
0: Well, I thank you for your time today, and I certainly thank you for all the years that you've put into the industry and helping lead the way to bring this crop back to, you know, not only North America, but to the world, because it's needed.
2: And we'll have it, and it's being championed by wonderful people like the two of you. Honestly, it's such a a thrill to just be in your presence, even on the screen.
0: (laughs) It's an honor to be in your presence, Ruth.
2: Okay, now we can all blush and feel good about ourselves. And you and big kisses.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with today?
2: No, just really gratitude that the industry is really coming into its own, that there's so many participants in so many aspects and that we're able to work and get it out and make the world a better place through cannabis. So thank you to both of you for for working in it and leading it and doing everything you do.
0: Well, thank you. All right, have a great day.
1: Bye, Ruth, take care.
0: NOCO Hip Expo 2021 is happening in person March 25th through the 27th at the National Western Complex in Denver, Colorado. With over 300,000 square feet of indoor space and 85,000 square feet of outdoor space, we will be COVID compliant, socially distanced, and ready to bring live events back to the public. Exhibitor and sponsor registration is currently available and tickets are on sale now. For more information, visit
1: nocohempexpo.com.
0: Well, that was wonderful talking to Ruth what a sweet lady she is.
1: Absolutely. Yes. And I also found it really interesting to learn about her, uh, you know, business before of, you know, the mail order natural product scenario and how, and, and also how she sent those 400 letters out to really bring that genetics to Canada. Like, wow, what a lady.
0: Yeah. She definitely had an an influence on Canada getting up and going as a leader in the hemp world. Absolutely. So we were also talking Ruth's supplier for most of her hemp products was Hemp Oil Canada. And we were talking about Sean Crew and what an awesome contributor Sean has been to the hemp industry, not only North America, but globally. He's, Definitely one of the top guys out there. Him and Mike Fada both. So do you want to talk a little bit about Sean? You've known him for a long time.
1: Yeah, Sean and I spent the greater sum of 11 years traveling and on the road together as I used to be an employee of, of Hemp Oil Canada. It was a cherished years for me and really Hemp Oil Canada allowed me to be an industry liaison as part of my position there. And that really, you know, aided in me being able to attend the international conferences and go to all of the, the trade shows at that time. You know, when people were walking up and giggling and saying, oh, can I smoke this? If I put it on my skin, am I going to get high? And so there was a mass amount of education in the food industry, even though as Ruth was saying, was not denied, it was real. It was relatively unknown. And so he had to work on developing those food products and how do you mill protein powder and what's the best press heads for pressing hemp seed oil and how do you market this product and what information has to need to be out there and so they started out having Prairie Emerald that was the brand and the interesting thing was is I did my internship at um, Parkland Hemp Growers in 2001 the summer of 2001 And when I came home, the North American Industrial Hems Council was having a conference in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm from. And I said, I have to go to this conference. Like, I don't care what's going on. A camp out that I've been camping out for 20 years. I don't forget about it. I ain't going to that camp out. I am going to this conference. And I was very proud. I had my prairie balm, my prairies emerald lip balm that I bought at a little hemp store, um, which actually used to be owned by Martin, which was one of the founders of Manitoba Harvest. So I had this hemp balm and I was so proud of this hemp balm, you know. So I got my, I went early, of course, I'm a keener. I got my seat. I sat my notebook down, had my hemp balm out. Yeah, look at my hemp balm. (laughs) And this stranger man who sits next to me says, oh, where'd you get that? And I said, oh, you know, and I proceed to tell my glamorous story and how excited and passionate it was. And he says, that's my company. Instantaneously, Sean and I have been friends since then, and colleagues. So I've really, um, you know, was very blessed by that relationship and his, um, you know, desire to allow me to be a leader in, in, in the company and, and really put us, help put Hemp Oil Canada on the map. And so we owe a lot to Sean. Um, so Sean, Ruth, and Mike, I mean, those, you know, Manitoba Harvest, Fresh Hemp Foods, Manitoba Harvest, Hemp World Canada, and Roost Foods were, you know, part of those leaders that really came together to help push, push Hemp Foods to the next level. So it, it you know, it's very proper that eventually Fresh Hemp Foods, Manitoba Harvest, and Hemp World Canada became to be one company. There was a lot of synergies there. So it was only inevitable that those, those, those transitions happened.
0: When I first found out about Sean and I invited him out to NOCO and he came out and did a keynote, I think he keynoted a couple of times. It was great to have his presence and his knowledge at NOCO along with yourself. You know, I think I did a pretty good job and with the help of Doug Fine to, to source good speakers early on with NOCO to, to have a lot of the right messages delivered early on back in 2014, 2015, 2016. So mm-hmm. I've always liked Sean and he's just a genuinely good man and fun guy to hang around to.
1: So much fun i mean and it was really back then i mean you know the quality assurance wasn't where it is today i mean it was a lot cruder than what it is today and now you're talking about you know multi-million dollar facilities and and it's you know they're all has and gfsi and all of the regulations that are tied into producing a safe food that now we have to set that standard and that stand that standard had to be set high right away so that we weren't ending up with a product that, that made people sick or that didn't have a nice flavor profile. Because if someone ever said, ooh, that hemp, that doesn't taste very good, that, that ends up trickling very fastly and that hits the consumer base and then they stop purchasing. So a lot of work went in. And then eventually, you know, hemp oil had to, to make the decision, like, are we going to be a brand? Or are we going to be a supplier? And and there was a shift that happened there where they said, okay, you know, to be a brand, you have to have a whole brand sales force as you out there with brands know. Um, And so they said, okay, let's just start focusing in on what we do best. And that was bulk camp foods.
0: They became the ingredient supplier. And then Manitoba Harvest, they were doing both as well. And they said, well, we're not going to supply ingredients anymore. We're going to become really just a brand and mm-hmm. that kind of leads into mike Fada, who we've got coming up next we should talk about let's get mike up and and get his story which also includes hemp oil canada which we'll get into that part of it as well great welcome back let's talk Hemp volume up podcast here with our guest founder from manitoba harvest mike Fada. how are you doing today mike Doing well, thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me. Appreciate having you on the show. Been a fan of Manitoba for a long time, ever since I got into the hemp industry. Appreciate all that you've done. That's awesome. It's been a a while, since 1998. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into that? How did you actually get into the hemp industry? What brought you here?
3: I fell in love with hemp when I was a teenager, and um, I always thought that hemp was cool, but hemp really fit into my lifestyle after I made the decision to uh, to lose 100 pounds and adopt a healthy lifestyle and learned about hemp and the essential fatty acids that hemp offered. And I fell in love with it from a nutrition standpoint. And then met Martin and Alex, uh, the other two co-founders of Mantua Harvest that were lobbying to legalize hemp and, uh, and were hemp activists. And I saw that there was going to be a fit uh, of, at that time, going from the no-fat diet to the right-fat diet or those essential fatty acids and marketing hemp seed oil.
1: Well, Mike, I've had the pleasure of knowing you professionally and personally for many years and sitting you know with you at the table, across from you at the table, and you know helping really advance the hemp food industry. One of the things, um, as I was looking at your LinkedIn that I noticed is that you dropped out of school when you were thirteen. And I think it's a really and I'm just getting the chills thinking about it. It's a really important message, I feel, to sh- to to look at where we're going with education how education can impact your professional career, not only educational as academia education, but also education as boots to the ground, core worker education. Can you talk about how being in that situation and the support you had from your family was able to position you to become an international leader in a, a budding crop industry?
3: Yeah, thank you. I, I grew up with a single mom, my brother and I, and uh, we were poor, didn't have a lot of money. And I, you know, I'd recall that after the minimum bills were paid, we had 20 bucks to buy food for two weeks as my mom's next kind of check. And so um, part not fitting in because I was overweight and, in, uh, and going into high school, but part I knew that I wanted to make a difference and, and help out with the family. And so I finished school when I was 13. I dropped out of school with my mom's support. And her, her deal was, uh, you could drop out of school if you start working. And I said, deal. And so when I was 14, I got into the workforce in construction. Uh, so I was a carpenter's apprentice at, at first and learned about making stuff and even though my job was more demolition and, and the dirty work, but did a bunch of different construction jobs in carpentry, in, in asphalt and concrete and interlocking stone. And that was really from when I was 14 till I was 20. And so I'd, I'd worked with different groups of people doing different tasks and uh, small and large projects. And and so by the time that uh, we founded Manitoba Harvest, I had a good practical sense of working with people and and, and even supervising people towards a, a common goal. And I think that helped out as a uh, from an entrepreneurial standpoint,
1: mm-hmm. and you know, and looking at that, I mean, I know you know Manitoba Harvest was a, a very grassroots scenario. I know you guys started in a small location downtown. That's now like a poutine place. Maybe it's no longer that, but I know it's it's really from humble beginnings. And you're talking about hand filling, hand labeling, not only those things, but really helping build the marketplace and the understanding of the product to the general retailer. It was really a blessing to everybody. And also, what Manitoba Harvest was able to do here in Canada when we were left with all of the grain from CGP filing bankruptcy. So, y'all really stepped in. Can you talk a little bit about? how you had to go about, you know, that, that communication point and being three young kind of hip fly guys coming in and talking with these farmers, how was it first perceived and how did you guys really start to take it to the next level?
3: Well, there's a bunch there, but uh, you know, let me, let me go out, uh, let me go at different pieces of it. I was a, uh, I invested in consolidated growers and process, so I was a shareholder. And so I I wanted the company to benefit, even though it didn't. The Manitoba Harvest brand, actually, uh, I started a company myself called Red River Valley Hemp Seed, which was the, uh, which created the Manitoba Harvest brand. And then when, and bought the first 200 liter drum of oil from CGP uh, and marketed it under the Manitoba Harvest label and started to sell it out to health food stores. And so when CGP went bankrupt and didn't work out, then Martin and Alex and I got together and created Fresh Hemp Foods and rolled the Manitoba Harvest brand into Fresh Hemp Foods, mm-hmm. uh, which then, you know, the brand became so strong, it uh, uh, we just went by the corporate name, Manitoba Harvest. And so that, that was really in in 1997, 1998, uh, the, the kind of prep work for that. And then you got to give me the second part of the question again, please.
1: Oh. Um, Well, I guess just kind of coming back, um, how did you, how did you guys take it to the next level? So once you sort of there, you were, you know, mostly selling at local establishments. And then what was sort of the next big move to really kind of launch um, either national or international?
3: I think the approach that we took at Manitoba Harvest was we were we took a natural foods store approach to it where in Canada anyway a lot of the hemp at that time was being sold in in hemp stores and other kind of locations like that and so Uh, When we started Manitoba Harvest, it was first in the Winnipeg health food stores. Uh, You know, shout out to Vita Health, a seven chain store in Manitoba, which was our first chain retailer. And then I started cold calling natural food stores in other places in Canada, in BC and and Nature's Fair, which is a a very prominent natural food store, was our first out of the province retailer. And then then we went east to to NOAA Natural Foods and, and a number of retailers in Toronto, ultimately wild oats and then whole foods and and uh, and, and then we kind of launched as a national brand from there into other grocery accounts like Loblaw's and Sobeys and Costco and so on but it was really the um, it was really the work that was done in the natural food stores to educate people about what hemp was offering how it was competitive to flax and how maybe people wanted to choose it for their for their health uh, over some of the other essential fatty acid products
1: Great. And I got one last question for you and I'll hand it back over to Morris. Do you see any parallels right now in the first five to six years of the Canadian hemp food industry as in compared to what's currently happening in the United States right now, whether that be on the food side or on the concept of the CBD cannabinoid side?
3: Yeah, the two things that come to mind are it's a bit of Wild West with lack of regulations and structure consistency across the industry. And then there's also a tremendous amount of oversupply uh, and both of those things happened in the early days in Canada after legalization. I think Manitoba Harvest took the route of of establishing uh, uh, quality control standards and even specifications for grain and final products, and and worked. it it worked our way through years of oversupply because it did happen in the early years and so i'd encourage everyone to uh, to try to you know think about quality think about the end consumer to to only offer a quality product and have a standard specification for quality product and just be very mindful of how much is produced because the industry can only grow so fast and oversupply really hurts the producers hurts the farmers
1: And I think a key point there, from my perspective, coming from the U.S. into Canada and being here now in the trenches for 20 some odd years, 21 years, is the fact that people came together. We all came together, whether it was through the Canadian Hemp Trade Alliance, came together and helped set those types of standards as a unified force with a united voice, which really end up making a huge difference in the collaboration that was able to move forward and the overall product development that was able to push these companies to the next level and understanding that we've got to make a quality product because it only takes one person to get sick and then, and then that, that trickles from there. I definitely see uh, the same. Can concur with you is just take a beat back and realize that the quality issues there, and that we have to um, try to watch the supply and demand as much as possible to level that out. Because you don't want to see farmers sitting with plant material, grain, or whatnot, and having no market for that. Thank you, Mike. Morris.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Mike. And I definitely see that parallel happening right now. After five or six years getting into this, now we've got this big oversupply. We do have regulations that are getting in place. The USDA final rule just got put into place, or they're going to put it into place as of March 22nd, right after this airs. But they did just announce that actually today, Mm -hmm. which was nice to see. You know, over the last several years, there's a lot of people have come together trying to get our Stuffed together correctly here in the United States. So looking back on what Canada has done is probably a, a good lesson for all of us. And what's uh, what else is interesting is we had um, Alan Dronkers from flax in 2016, and he had made some some comments at NOCO about what happened in Europe with the oversupply back in the late 90s and so forth when they were trying to get their industry off the ground. And that actually leads me to the next question. How did Canada really rise up to be the kind of the hemp foods leader rather than Europe? Was Europe just really focused on the fiber side of things at that point and they really weren't into the grain?
3: Yeah, I think Europe was more focused on the fiber because there were subsidies for producing fiber when they had to harvest actually before the uh, the grain was set to get the subsidy, and there was a, fi- a bigger fiber industry and a bigger push on on uh, on natural resource fiber uh, in Europe. And so, for the most part, Europe was behind on not only the the experience to grow quality grain from our experience because we did try to work with a number of of European organic suppliers back in the earlier days. And I'd use the example that if in Canada, if the quality specification for clean grain was like 99.9% purity, which means only one out of a thousand seeds would be foreign in in Europe, they they would have a harder time uh, achieving, or their standard was like 98% or 99%, which is just totally a different grade of product. And that's advanced now, but uh, back then it was more of a fiber focus for the grain. The grain was just at at a uh, uh, less of a focus and one could say, A a poor quality crop.
0: And was China also in the hemp grain market at that time?
3: China was in the hemp grain market, but you couldn't import Chinese seed into Canada anyway without it being already manufactured into like a hemp heart or, or oil because because the the grain wasn't registered as from a variety standpoint, and so and again, all of our work of, of sampling and testing the the grain that was coming out of China, it was a lot of inconsistencies in in, in quality, a lot of foreign material, higher micro counts, uh, and so it, it as soon as Canada was a supply, which only took, you know, in the early years, uh, a couple dozen farmers to supply all the market demand. We had the uh, we had the right quality and had enough volume of product uh, to really start the market.
1: I think we had it in with the work of Manitoba Harvest, also the, the consumer understood in Europe, it's still struggling for, they are starting to see more, but they're still struggling to understand hemp as a human food, as they did have um, a long history with it being as an animal food. So they really thought of it and that goes back to the quality. Well, why was it going to the animals? Because it wasn't as, as good as quality as what our, our, sense, our sensory would want.
3: Yeah, that's a good point, Andrea. It, it, it was, in Canada's terms, it was birdseed quality, but that's what it was. It was Chinese seed coming over into Holland, into Rotterdam as birdseed, and then going out there into the other countries, and they were ma- some of them were manufacturing uh, oil and, and hemp hearts and protein off of it, but it, it originated as a, as a birdseed quality product.
0: And then when did you guys start getting really American customers, let's say like the Dr. Bronner's of the world and Nutiva's that started to buy from Canada?
3: So, Mental Harvest launched in 1998, and then we launched in the U.S. in uh, in, in 2000, uh, really 2001, before the for the big push in the U.S. And then we got uh, Whole Foods uh, distribution in, in 2001. It, it, almost the whole entire history of, of menta Harvest, we were selling in Canada and the U.S. and then uh, elsewhere internationally. And then, you know, from an ingredient supply, we did ingredient supply at Mental Harvest in the earlier days up until. Up until really 2010, when then the brand sales were going so strong that we stopped uh, doing ingredient sales, and and most of the ingredient supply was uh, was made by uh, Hemp Oil Canada. And then you know in 2015 when we acquired uh, Hemp Oil Canada, then it all came under one roof under the Manitoba Harvest uh, umbrella.
0: Well, and that actually leads into the next question. Uh, with that acquisition of Hemp Oil Canada, then Manitoba Harvest was acquired as well by like a hedge fund. I believe, and then secondly, that was, you were then acquired again uh, with Tilray in 2019. Can you break down how those transactions went?
3: Yeah, in 2015 we had some shareholders that uh, that were supporting the business and from in the early 2000s that were driving a sale of the business and so we hired an investment banker and and ran a full auction to to sell Manitoba harvest and uh, and we ended up finding the right partner in compass diversified holdings or cody which is a private equity firm that's publicly traded in in uh, uh, on the new york stock exchange and we completed that transaction in July of 2015 Compass Diversified bought Manitoba Harvest for $132 million or or bought the majority of the business. And they were a billion-dollar private equity fund at that time. And so um, they were our sponsor that funded the transaction to buy Hemp Oil Canada. So literally, as soon as the ink was dry on on the deal with Compass in July, we uh, we started due diligence and, and negotiation to buy Hemp Oil Canada, which we completed in December 2015. And then from there, we worked really to integrate the two businesses uh, because at that time, the combined entity had two manufacturing facilities with about seventy-five thousand square feet of manufacturing and about two hundred team members. uh, Which so it took about a good year to uh, to integrate the two businesses. Uh, And then the latest transaction, which you know is now two years old, but um, was just the the, it was the right timing. you know what had happened is in 2018, Canada legalized recreational marijuana, and so all the licensed producers, like Canopy Growth, like Tilray, like Aurora, had very very strong capital markets and had raised significant capital for their for their ventures. So that was one aspect. Uh, and then in. Uh, At the same time, the U.S. legalized hemp and with with full federal legalization. And literally the day after Trump signed uh, the the legalization of hemp, the FDA granted mental harvest grass application for hemp hearts and oil and protein, which really legitimized that hemp was here to stay. Not only was it legal, but it was fully compliant for every food company in, in the U.S. and therefore in the world to use hemp foods. And so I saw that aligning and said, Hey, now's the time that there's these companies that are even bigger sponsors. They had 10 or $20 billion market capitalization compared to Cody's billion dollars that it would really seat the business uh, uh, well going forward. And so there was a a transaction organized with Tilray that was complete March 1st, 2019, uh, where Mantua Harvest was sold to Tilray for $419
0: million dollars. Just one more million, you would have hit the magic yeah. number. that's that's
3: the uh, that, that's the comment uh, for sure, Morris. And uh, <laughs> you know, I think some people were scared uh, of of being a four hundred twenty million, but uh, anyway, it was one of the largest transactions in our industry's history, and 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 in the natural products uh, space as well. And uh, so, very proud of that. And and now that continues with Tilray and Afria emerging and and Mantua Harvest is just a part of a bigger and bigger global organization focused on all things uh, cannabis.
0: And are you still involved with
3: all of that? No, since we closed the transaction, there are no private shareholders anymore. There is no private board of directors. And so I, I haven't been involved with the business for, uh, for the last two years. And actually my non-compete just ended with the business uh, uh, in the last week. And, and so after two years of sitting on the sidelines, I am now uh, fully compliant to uh, invest in, advise in and so on and so on with, with, uh, with hemp, uh, hemp companies, uh, which is pretty exciting.
1: Yeah. And I, I would assume that had to have been quite difficult. I mean, you know, to see that rise and and be so engaged and then all of a sudden not be able to, to be involved just for myself, I would, I would, I could see how that could be, you know, earth, earth shaking and help just kind of shake your whole life up and maybe change the focus for a while on, you know, what really matters right now to you and, and having that time to step back after, after working so hard and traveling so much. And know having the opportunity now to be home with your family
3: Mm -hmm. yeah well there's no dull moment i mean for me it am my um i guess i'm a hamster because i've been into it for 23 years but uh it's really about health and natural health for me and so you know, I've since I left Mantoba Harvest, I've been involved uh, and am involved with a number of companies in, in the natural product space and in uh, and better for you and, and health, whether that's functional mushrooms or plant based protein or, or, you know, even organic indulgent chocolate. Like these are all things that, that I've uh, I'm also passionate about. So I, I, when I say sit on the sidelines, it was really about sitting on the hemp sidelines, but uh, still uh, involved in my personal passions and, and making a difference in our industry.
0: That's great. Can you talk about any of these new brands that you're involved with right now? Uh, yeah,
3: yeah, I can. Yeah. And it's all, you know, my, my LinkedIn profile is the best uh, place to find all the projects I'm working on, but Ohm Mushrooms, based in Carlsbad, California, is the leader in growing the top 10 functional mushroom uh, species. And, and then I say OM is the Manitoba harvest of the functional mushroom industry because vertically integrated organic producer of the mushrooms, selling mushrooms as as an, in, an ingredient, but also as a uh, as a brand. And so I ran OM's board there for three years. Uh, now I'm a, a silent shareholder with the business, but that's one of the uh, companies in my portfolio. Soul cuisine which is the one of the oldest plant-based protein companies in in Canada based in Mississauga uh, by, by the Toronto airport is a maker of all plant-based protein foods center of the plate and and, uh, and and appetizer as well just had a big announcement with that business as uh, it's just listed as a qualifying transaction and will be going uh, public. I'm also involved in, in a couple other handfuls of natural food uh, companies, whether it's uh, organic chocolate, uh, Love Good Fats is an example of, uh, of, of high quality fat, low sugar products. And uh, just my focus is really on health and uh, my passion is health and my purpose is to, uh, to help share it with the world.
0: Well, you're a good role model and a mentor for the industry. I appreciate that.
3: I'm just getting started. I'm looking forward to making a bigger and bigger impact. It's exciting to be able to do that from home uh, and have a have a kind of global reach uh, too. And uh, and I guess that's a that's a COVID silver lining. Anything
0: else you'd like to leave our audience with today?
3: I know that you guys are are uh, interviewing and profiling a uh, a number of uh, of the veteran hemp uh, pioneers. And uh, so thanks for the work that you're doing. It's amazing that twenty something years later. A lot of people are still discovering hemp uh, for the first time and, and really what it can offer nutritionally, medicinally, and even as a, as a natural resource. And so
0: thanks for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. You've uh, provided a good foundation for us to build an industry on at this point in time. It's great. Thanks again for having me. All right. Thanks, Mike.
2: No matter what side of the fence you sit, we can all agree that hemp is good for this country. Whether it's the new opportunities it presents for our farmers, the jobs it creates in our communities, the health products that are entering the marketplace, or the positive environmental impact it has on this planet, there are endless reasons to be a Friend of Hemp. Please join Friends of Hemp today to connect with others who are cheering hemp forward. Visit friendsofhemp.org to learn how you can become a Friend of Hemp.
0: Well, it was awesome to talk to Mike and get his story on everything that he's been through the last twenty plus years and and what he's doing now outside of the hemp industry.
1: I've always been impressed by Mike. I mean from the very beginning, um you know him, Martin and Alex also embraced me, even though I was. You know, in the beginning when I was at Parkland, they were working with Parkland growers and and helping with the CGP in the beginning. So there was a lot of crossover that brought those three particular gentlemen into my direct verse and also having, um, you know, seeing what was kind of considered competing entities at the table working together. And trust me, there were conversations that could have been heated and, you know, feelings that were involved because we were all very passionate and Marcus Richardson also, you know, really helped push the industry to the next level here in Canada. And that, that's really important. And another thing I was really impressed by Mike, which I did not know until this interview, is that, you know, he left school at 13 years old. I mean, I moved out when I was in high school and lived on my own. So I know the pressures that come along with being young and supporting yourself. And, but having the support from your family made a huge difference. And that was what Mike said too, is that his, his mother supported him. And that by the time he got into the hemp industry, he'd already been you know managing crews. And so he had knowledge of what it needed to be a leader. But to think about that as we look at when we're hiring people to come work for us is that, you know, yes, academia, I'm all about it. Let's get more people highly educated, but also let's give the people a chance that maybe didn't have that opportunity to get that kind of education. Let's give them a foot in the door and give those people a chance. If you look at programs like Fair Shake, which is Sue Castensen, which is also the former Sundog hemp brand and early on hemp brand, you know, how do we help people that have had, and now especially that we see people being released from prison for very small marijuana offenses. How do we give those people the chance to move forward without, oh, you were in jail. Well, you know, who cares? Like you can gain a lot of knowledge. So how do we, how do we like it? So that was really something that um, impressed me just on this show that I learned from him.
0: Yeah, I was quite impressed too, but it's obvious education doesn't equate to intelligence necessarily. Mike's a highly intelligent man. There's no question about it. He speaks great. And he's got a ton of experience and experience counts.
1: Absolutely. You go
0: to work at 14. He was working construction and learned how to manage people and build teams and and then he built one of the strongest teams in him history at this point. And I
1: think You know, Mike's the face, but we can't forget about Martin and Alex and, you right. know, his partners in the business. So I think that also kind of was a shift. You always got to have a face of the company, you know, and and because because Mike lost all the weight and really changed his life and, and his eating and exercise. But the, it just goes to show how you, you can do that out there. I mean, if you are. You know, you need to make a lifestyle change, whether or not. No matter your whole body um, and how that can change, and you don't have to be a large person or small person. You can make those small changes to help you internally, which impact on what's going on the outside. So it's really empowering to to know the sort of humble beginnings that we've all come from. And we and I love the fact, Morris, that you're bringing these kind of episodes up and bringing these people out into the front, so that those that are coming into the industry today. Know who was here for them in the beginning and who really fought for the rights that we now are fight continuously fighting for. So it's empowering to to not forget about those people.
0: It's like what Ruth said, some of her early influences like Chris Conrad and Mickey Norris. And those two are still relevant today, but those two have been at it since the 80s or the 70s.
1: -hmm.
0: And you mentioned John Dvorak. And we mentioned Jack Hare and there's several, you know, and Barbara Philippone. Mm -hmm. These people have been out there for decades and people need to recognize who's been fighting for this plan and fighting for our industry for a long time.
1: And a lot of those voices, you know, we don't know. I mean, Ernie Small, I mean, you know, Ernie Small's got the one, the point three that it kind of hangs over his head. He didn't agree with it, but he had the pressure, man. He told me he was like having the dunce hat on in the corner his entire career because of the fact that he was out there fighting for cannabis and the Canadian government. And it was like, he was over in the corner, like you're bad, you know, you're, you're, you're this cannabis guy, highly educated. And they really put the thumb on him and he had to make hard decisions in his position, which we now are fighting to overcome as the one percenters. You know, but you know, he now, Ernie says, you know, he's in a big data drop. So he's writing books and he's just trying to put as much information that he has because he doesn't necessarily have a successor. So his successor is pinned to paper.
0: So let's get, talk a little bit about you before we wrap up this episode. What are you up to? Are you, you're still doing hemp production services, right?
1: Yep. I'm still with HPS. So HPS was brought on as a bulk hemp ingredient supplier. There was a gap in the supply that was happening in Canada. And it was recognized that we needed to have A another bulk hemp food supplier in the market. And with relationship with our sister company, Hemp Genetics International, which is a leader in plant breeding and supplying stable cultivars. We struck up hemp production services, which essentially in the beginning was actually an agronomic company. So the thought was is that we were having companies call and say, oh, hey, you know, I need agronomic advice for my farmers you're supplying seed, give us that agronomic advice. Well, it wasn't really the plant breeder's position to, to do that. So they said, you know, okay, well, let's develop an agronomic company. And that was, a, that was when Hemp Production Services came on. We're now actually Hemp HPS Food and Ingredients to change that focus really to the food and ingredients side. And we're helping to build that portfolio out as our farmers that we direct contract with grow other crops and our breeders are working on other crops, lentils and fava beans. So it's been a real, you know, when I, when I departed from hemp Canada, I took a break from the hemp food industry of my own choice. There was no non-compete or anything like that. It was just like, I was just like, okay, I need to take a step back and refresh myself. And when I left from there, you know, basically in a lot of sense, I had outgrew my position. And, you know, what Sean said to me is like, Andrea, it's really time for you to spread your wings and soar. And that's what that, that that happened. And so I got engaged with, you know, what was going on in the hemp creed industry. I started doing my private consulting and that was really great because it became into a period where my hemp dreams had come true and were continuously coming true. And when I started my consulting business, it sh- it shifted to where I was helping people's hemp dreams come true. They were coming to me and then I was helping advance their projects or a lot of time it was a reality check that had to be gathered because they're like oh i want to grow hemp and make t-shirts and build my house and and make food and i was like whoa how much money do you have let's back up and let's see what you what what needs to be done where can you fill the gap and where are your passions at so and then from that it, it you know started to kind of shift and then when hps came forward they said hey andrea we know you have experience in this can you come help us develop a, um, you know, a bulk camp food company and and help us put it out there? And so at that time, I was like, okay, I'm I'm ready to dip back into the food industry, and and thankfully now that's been almost five years now back at with HPS.
0: And so that's really your main gig that you're doing right now.
1: Yeah, that's my main gig, and I had a I had a little son three years ago, so that obviously shifted. Um, you know, my life, I'm 40, was, you know, 40 at the time. So, you know, it was a late, late mama And, you know, as most of my friends, their kids are now kind of going off to university or in high school or having babies of their own. So that that, you know, aided to kind of a shift in my life also on, you know, how much I could travel, where I could go, when I could go and how much time I had to dedicate. So I had to cut a lot of my nonprofit work down after being with the CHTA and with the HIA for a long time. I had to make a decision on where I was really, truly needed and that decision came down that i was i was needed more on the hemp industry association side in the us than i was here in canada as being a, as on the board of the canadian hemp trade alliance so i shifted to doing more committee work for them and then really still focusing on my board position at hia
0: which you're still part of right now.
1: I'm still part of it's uh, Yeah, it's definitely a growing scenario and, and ever changing. And I mean, you know, thankfully, one of the things Ruth said in the beginning was, you know, the ladies that were really running that association and, the you know, the Larry serbans and the Jacks, of the world that really kind of came in then and said, OK, hey, we need to take this to the next level. And then, uh, you know, having companies follow suit from there, like Dr. Bronner's and Nativa and what John Rulak did and the books that were published that really started to bring hemp into sort of the modern or the today scenario. And now, you know, you can, thankfully, you know, you can go to most Walmarts where common people go and buy hemp products. So we owe a lot to those, you know, those initial grassroots that we tend to forget about, or I have, you know, I see that happen that people don't, they're like, Oh, I found hemp. It's great. And they get in their bubble and they're like, okay, I'm going to do this. But they, they never look out and say where that history come from. And, and, and how did we get here and who do we need to say, thank you to for keeping at it or for those that came and went. I mean, we saw lots of people who came into the hemp industry and it was just so hard and they lost so much and they had to file bankruptcy. And I remember Todd Delotto, um, old school hempster, too, saying, you know, how many people owed him money still today that bought bars on consignment of his honey bars, bought bars on consignment that he never got paid for. So I've often said maybe this is something NOCO could um, do is I've always thought about like the all debts forgiven reunion. And, you know, let's bring everybody together. I don't care if you owed me money for those bars I sent you on consignment all those years ago. Where are you? We want your energy. We need you to mentor the next people. So I've always thought that would be a really fun theme is to have that, you know, all debts forgiven or something like that reunion and bringing all these people together.
0: That's a great idea. Thanks. Let's do it. you, You always have some good, clever ideas. It's been great talking to you. Is there anything else you'd like to get off your chest here before we you know, call I mean, this think, episode?
1: Yeah, you know what? I think the power's in our dollar, people. Like, like get your voice heard. Call your representatives always. Um, you know, stay engaged in what's going on in your state and buy hemp products, show them to people, wear them, eat them. I mean, that's really where the change is going to be is to basically put our money where our mouth is and, and try the best job we can to, you know, promote hemp and and have a collaborative movement where we're coming together. We're all going to have our differences and some people are going to like one thing and another, but we've got to come to a middle ground and we're seeing that a lot you know, with HIA, with the Hemp B Coalition, I mean, these groups coming together, and others that are really helping shape, you know, where we're going as an industry.
0: Couldn't agree more. And yeah, we talked, me and Josh Hendricks and Annie Rouse, friends of hemp, have talked about, again, all these different groups, getting everybody to come together in the middle and put aside differences and, and just really focus on a united voice.
1: It it, it will happen. And I think right now with the US having, you know, with the regulations being different at every single state, it's hard. it, It is hard for a national body to manage that. I mean, here in Canada, we have one we have one law. I don't care if you're in BC or if you're in Nova Scotia or Manitoba. It's one rule. we work under. So uh, having that very fragmented regulation does make it hard and does allow for more state chapters. But I mean, this is something where you can have a national body and then you have state chapters The Future Farmers of America. I mean, they have the same kind of scenario where they've got state chapters. You know, I'd love to see eventually where we've, you know, got state chapters and we can have camps for kids and inspiring minds and these kinds of things to come together and really, you know, help push the next generation of hamsters.
0: Well, there's still a lot of work for us all to do over the coming years. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Get out there and we'll keep on doing it, Morris. And and thank you, of course, for all you're doing and your, your contagious smile and energy that everybody is really just drawn to. And really appreciate you, Morris. Thank right. you.
0: Well, I appreciate you, too. Well, yeah. take care. that is going to wrap it up for episode five of volume up the let's talk hemp podcast and i again want to thank andrea herman for co-hosting along with Ruth Shemai and mike fada sharing their time and insight into the canadian hemp industry hempsters from around the world owe a debt of gratitude to all of you and many others from canada for helping bring the vision of hemp to the world Be sure to check out Let's Talk and subscribe to our weekly Let's Talk Hemp newsletter for the most up-to-date information on the hemp industry. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please hit that subscribe button on the player, share it with your friends and family, and if you're feeling it, leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you came across the show. If you are interested in sponsoring, advertising, or being a featured guest, drop us a message to info at Let's Talk And until next time, we'll catch you on the other side.
2: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
0: Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.